Welcome to Podcast, the official podcast of the Leaky Cauldron. The Leaky Cauldron. The Leaky Cauldron. Do you hear that, Ern? The Leaky Cauldron. And now, Leaky Zone, Melissa and Ellie. Hi, welcome to Pottercast, the first official podcast for the Leaky Cauldron. I'm Melissa from Leaky. I'll be leading you through a lot of this week's Pottercast, but in the future, you'll hear from all our staff. Uh, we're really happy to finally bring this podcast to you. We've been playing with this cool technology for like six months now, and we think we've finally hit upon something that you'll like, so we hope you have fun. Here's what you can usually expect from our Cauldron cast. First, you'll get your news. We're going to start the show each week with a short wrap-up of what's been going on in the Harry Potter world, so you'll be able to catch up if you've missed a few items or just be reminded about what's going on. Uh, this show will also feature some bits that will be weekly recurring features, such as the Modcast for moderators from our forums, LeakyLounge.com, who really sort of are the people who know what you guys are talking about right now. We'll get together to discuss theories, speculation, and just... Cavell together. They're, they're a lot of fun. They're a little loopy, but they're a lot of fun. Um, we'll also interview you. We'll interview fans about what they think of the books and the films. We're going to start that this week with one of our moderators, but next week we could be talking to you. So make sure that you stick around till the end and you can find out how you can uh, try and be that person. Uh, this week we also have an in the know segment, which is what we call the piece of the show when we talk to uh, when we talk about Harry Potter with someone who has some expertise in books, films, music, something related that gives them some sort of uh, informed opinion about Harry Potter and the franchise and the news. At the end of each show is our Extendable Ears segment. This is where we get to bring you a bit of an interview with the people who actually put the Potter books and the films together. This week we have Bonnie Wright. She plays Ginny Weasley, and we were really happy to speak to her. She's just a darling. She talks about filming movie four and reading book six. The second bit of interview we'll be bringing you on Extendable Ears is with Stuart Craig, who is the production designer and has been for all four Harry Potter films. He speaks about, about doing movie four and also about the beginnings of movie five, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which is in the very, very early stages of pre-production and won't be filming properly until January. So that's a lot of fun to have. And then at the very end, we will bring you information on how to become a part of our Cauldron cast. We're looking for your input. We can't wait to get you guys involved in this. It's really a, an interesting way to bring the fans into the site. So have fun, and let's get started with the news. And now it's time for the Leaky Lowdown. Wrapping up this week in Harry Potter news, only on Pottercast. So here's what's going on in the Harry Potter news world this week. First of all, if you go to Pottercast.com and click on news, you'll find all these stories, all the relevant links, and more, so make sure you do that. The West Asheville branch of the Asheville Buncombe Library System in North Carolina has won Scholastic's contest for the first ever signed American edition of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. There was such an overwhelming response to this contest, there were 9,000 entries from libraries across the country, that Scholastic awarded 49 other signed books and, give, and gave them to a library in each state besides North Carolina. For pictures of the book's journey over to America, check out Leakey. Composer Patrick Doyle, who is scoring Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, recently gave an interview to the Scotland Evening Times where he called Harry Potter a task that will be his biggest challenge yet. A church in Pennsylvania has started to use Harry Potter books in its Vacation Bible School curriculum, and that has doubled their enrollment. Also, we recently discovered that Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire has received a PG-13 rating from the Motion Picture Association of America. This is the first time that a Harry Potter movie has not, has not received a PG rating in the United States. 
And also today, Bloomsbury has released their audio edition of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. They put up a little clip on their site of Stephen Fry doing the audio, and we have a little tease of it for you right here. So, Harry, said Dumbledore in a business-like voice, you have been wondering, I am sure, what I have planned for you during these, for want of a better word, lessons. Now you can hear the whole clip at Bloomsbury.com as well as order the audio version which is available today. You can also go to thecauldronshop.com which is the site that supports Leaky, the entire flu network, and this podcast to order the audio version from those links. And that's it to get all this, all these stories and more. Remember to go to pottercast.com and click on news. And that's all that's important for now. We told you to keep it short on with the rest of the program. You're listening to Pottercast. Wicked. The official podcast of the Leaky Cauldron. Pottercast is brought to you by the Leaky Cauldron, the top spot for Harry Potter news on the web. We're also brought to you by Streamload.com. Streamload is a service that allows you to share large files with your friends. They give you unlimited storage, so whatever you have, you can host it. And for about 10 bucks a month, you get 10 gigabytes of transfer. Now, 10 gigabytes is about 300 of these podcasts. We've been using Streamload for over a year at Leaky, and we just think they're great. So if you need it, go to Streamload.com. It's freedom for your digital lifestyle. Warning, if you have not yet read Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, proceed with caution. There are spoilers afoot. In the fan corner, a one-on-one interview with the podcast. With a new fan each week. Wicked! We have got with us Asphodel Wormwood, who is, her real name is Lori Damarell, but you know her as Asphodel Wormwood from the Leaky Lounge. This is going to be the segment where we speak to one fan in depth about whatever, about the books, about the movies, whatever is up that week. This week, it's Lori from our lounge, but next week it could be you. So, hi, Lori. Hi, Dad. I should qualify that this is the first time that Lori and I have ever spoken. Ever? While we, yeah, while we haven't been typing at the same time. So, let's talk about Snape. What do you think? Um, my immediate reaction, I... Uh I actually thought he was, um, he turned to the bad side. Um, that lasted for about an hour, and then I realised, no, Joe wouldn't do that. He's not evil. Um, it's not just a personal bias or anything like that. I personally believe that Joe wouldn't set it up this far and have him as such a key figure of someone who has sought redemption for such a horrible crime, which was betraying the Potters, um, just to dash it all and make him a bad guy at the end. So how do you think then somebody like that, you know, just playing devil's advocate here, can actually speak the words that kill Dumbledore? Um, it, it depends how the curse works, I suppose. One theory I've had is, um, and that I've seen with other members, is Snape has um, a lot of self-hatred. And with a spell, you need intent and you need some form of energy, such as emotional energy. So if he gathers up all his self-hatred and then he focuses it in another direction, and I think he channeled his hatred for himself against Dumbledore. At the time he was killing Dumbledore, he was hating himself as he did it. The look on his face that he gave, you know, of hatred and revulsion was directed at himself, and that's how he mustered the power to do it. And I think Dumbledore is just a very trusting person, and he knows where to place his trust appropriately. The only person he has never, ever trusted is the Dark Lord. Mm. He never trusted Tom, ever. Um, he probably had a little trust in the characters such as Bellatrix when they were at school, or maybe um, Lucius Malfoy. 
he has hope for Draco. By comparison, the fact that he didn't trust Tom really puts Tom on his own in Dumbledore's estimation. What was the th what was the point of the book that you were most shocked by that you had the strongest reaction to? The abuse shown by the Gaunt family, the truth about what um the Dark Lord did, and uh, how why the context etc of Snape killing Dumbledore were all very big whoa moments for me. Mm -hmm. When you saw the abuse of in, in the Gaunt family, had you anticipated it or was it a surprise? It was a surprise. I hadn't really made any guesses on Tom's maternal line. What were the points in this book where you where you just stopped and, and sort of appreciated the depth of this series and where we're going with it? The maturity of the book, of the characters, was very striking. And then the decisions of Merope, of the decisions of the Gaunts to treat their daughter as they did, the decisions of Tom to act as he did, and all the things that he did, the way he behaved, the way he treated the young children, all these things that actually led to the future in whatever way, shape, or form that they did. Mm -hmm. Dumbledore... Do you find fault with any of his actions that we were shown in this book? Um, in the chapter Horcruxes, um, the one thing that really, really struck me, and I've spoken to other people and they don't see it and they think that I'm, you know, making a mountain out of a molehill over it, but the reason he gives for why Tom made the diary a Horcrux, and he said that it would be proof that Tom was heir of Slytherin, and... I don't follow the logic in that argument um, because whatever object Tom would have chosen, be it a diary, be it um, a pencil, whatever, it would once it had been made a Horcrux, that would be proof he was heir of Slytherin. So Dumbledore's reasoning doesn't quite fit for me, and I thought, and that made me think he's he's losing his grip because he's always got the perfect answer for everything, and this time he hasn't. And he just gives Harry one that sounds good, yeah, but isn't quite as well thought out as it could have been. Well, do, do you think that all of his Horcrux guesses are correct? I don't believe the one about Nagini. I don't think um, the Dark Lord is stupid enough to stick his soul in something mortal. Mm -hmm. Well, what about then this idea that Harry is a Horcrux? Um, if he is, I don't think it was deliberate. Mm -hmm. It was some bizarre... Um, combination of events of the curse backfiring it was a it was a mistake um something that wasn't meant to happen but has happened mm -hmm. it's always funny when people talk about harry scar being a horcrux it just it is just funny it makes me laugh because <laughs> I, I how do you ri i mean is it like surgery does hermione say hold still harry this is gonna hurt a bit we're gonna de-scar <laughs> you like it just it just, it just it just makes me laugh. So, uh, so you know, I, I know that if it is in the books, it won't be a laughing matter. But at the moment, no. at the you, moment. You can't see any feasible way of it to stop being a Horcrux. Right. Other right. than Harry sacrificing himself heroically. Right. Um, I, I really, I just couldn't have, have a guess, really, because it could be any means of de-Horcruxing it. Um, there must be some magical purgative of getting rid of someone's soul. In you, um, in the in the interview with Joe, she mentioned equal and opposite reactions. She transmitted the idea that every 
action she makes in her world, there is an equal and opposite reaction, just like in physics. There is, if you push, there is a pull somewhere in the universe. So if there is this horcrux, and there is a method of evilly capturing a bit of a soul, what's its opposite? What, how do you use love to capture something that has that, that, that large power? And will that factor in? Um, I put a lot of weight, um, a lot of hope, in the element of forgiveness, um, it's something that I hold, you know, personal. I loathe the idea of vengeance, and I love the idea of forgiveness. So perhaps it's something that you forgive some. In order to put a Horcrux, you know, put your an element of your soul into a Horcrux, form a Horcrux, it has to be completely malevolent, and you've got to have no want for redemption. You are not sorry for what you have done. Um, it's purely based on negative emotion. However, if you come along and say, well, I forgive you for doing this, perhaps it breaks down the magic. Hmm. Perhaps, you know, the emotion of forgiveness of, um, which is a benevolent emotion, um, maybe that starts breaking down the negative emotions that bind the soul to the Horcrux. I'm, I'm just guessing. Yeah. No, it's, a, it's an informed guess as far as J.K. Rowling's world goes. You know, there is that the positive force does, as it does in so much literature, does come back and, and kill the evil force in the end, the Patronus being the, the most pure example. Yes. Um, you know, we have, oh, I love the Patronus. Now, Harry, is he going to live or is he going to die? I think he'll live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he will. I think, I think at the end, if he dies, even if he dies in an act of love and an act of sacrifice, you've still got two dead people. And I like the fact that we have so many contrasts in this book, you know, good and evil, um, light and dark, all this sort of thing. Um, so I think it will make a fitting end that we have at least, you know, one or other, you'd have one alive and one dead. And obviously, Voldemort's not going to live, nobody likes him. Um, well, I do, I do, I find him fascinating, but he's not going to live. So Harry, Harry will. So, okay, a couple people, and you, and you answer me very quickly whether they will live or, live or die, okay? You ready? Yeah. Ron. He will live. Hermione. Yep, she will too. Neville. Um, I hope so. I think so, yes. Ginny? Yes. <laughs> you say that with hesitation. I don't like Ginny as a character, so I don't actually pay much attention to her. So I don't really follow her role in the novels as much as I should. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. Um, Arthur Weasley. No, he'll live. He'll be one of the Weasleys that lives. Okay, which le- which Weasley will die? Um, Molly mm-hmm. will, and um, Fred Weasley. One of the twins will, and I think it will be Fred because he's the uh, stronger, more dominant twin. And I think the feeling of being lost will hit George very, very hard. Severus Snape. Um, oh, that's a hard one. I hope he lives. I think he will, um, basically, because so many people, if he dies, people are like, oh, yeah, good, that's justice for him. And I don't think Joe jo will promote that in her books. And, I, and I, I just don't think it's appropriate to have death as a punishment. And I think that people are maybe underestimating her when they think of death as a punishment because if you are a Dumbledore adherent, you know it's not. You know it's like going to sleep. And so, you know, after a long day, as he says, so 
perhaps making him live and live with what he's done and where his life has led him is a larger punishment. Yes. I, I don't know. I hope... I think he will find peace. But whether that will be living or not, I, I'm not sure. I hope he finds peace. I don't know. My jury's out <laughs> on him. <laughs> Every day I wake up with a different idea <laughs> about whether he's good or not. And Anyway... Um, <laughs> Because she does that to you. She gets, you know, every couple of days you have this, if you're a hardcore fan, you have this moment of, I need to know. <laughs> yeah, know? and you go rifling through your books and it's like, there's something here and I need to know. And it's like, oh, I can't work it out. Yeah. And you just give up and you just stare listlessly into space thinking, not long till book seven. Yeah. Not long till book seven. <laughs> and she's sitting there in Edinburgh just laughing and <laughs> laughing. <laughs> thinking, I might start writing it tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the power she holds over us. Okay, we're going to end on Draco Malfoy. Um, I used to think that he'd survive, but now I'm not so sure. He's wanted by so many people, and it's as though he had his chance to help himself, and he lost it. Well, I think that that is going to be our ending point. Thank you <laughs> very, very much, Laurie. Well, it's been lovely talking. <laughs> lovely talking. Oh, she says that so nice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. And we'll see you next time. Podcast. Straight from the Leaky Lounge. The official web form of the Leaky Cauldron comes Podcast. Where the Leaky moderators sound off on Harry Potter issues of the moment. Everyone will please not panic. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Modcast, a segment of Pottercast. We are forum moderators for the Leaky Lounge. My name is Erin Yazbik, and I'm the moderator, Lady Stratford. My name is Brooke Hendrickson, and my mod name is Alien Inc. I'm Laura Demereau, otherwise known as Asphodel Wormwood. I'm Kim Parker, very creatively known as Kim M. Parker. Today we're just going to be talking about our initial feelings on after reading Half-Blood Prince. By now, most of us have read it more than once and have at least digested enough to give our gut feeling. Lori? My gut feeling? Um, where to start, really? Fascinated by Tom and the history behind how he became immortal. <laughs> Don't laugh. Oh, you would be. You know I love him, and he's just a remarkable character. It was interesting to get the background, I thought. I, I enjoyed the childhood scenes, and, you know, you just see so much evil and it was interesting to see even as a child how that manifested itself and I, I particularly enjoyed that back history. It was nice I wouldn't call it evil. It was evil but it was nice seeing the it was um, a good evil. interplay <laughs> between Dumbledore and Tom Riddle. Yeah that was that was interesting especially as as a child how Tom Riddle was willing to face down Dumbledore in some ways even as a child you know speaking to him in a way that a child doesn't normally speak to an adult and kind of, to me, was a, a forerunner of what was to come in that relationship, that there was never any respect for Dumbledore other than he had to obey him, he had to respect him and, or, or do what, what he said yeah, to, get, to get what he wanted. And that seemed to be the only reason he, he even had anything to do with, with Dumbledore, which was typical of all his relationships. And along the lines of the Dumbledore, seeing that growth in the different scenes that we saw, him as a child, him at school, and then him coming back to request the, the Dada position and how they changed throughout the growth of the, with his relationship with Dumbledore. I mean, by the time he comes back, he has literally no respect for the man. Yes. 
That's true. I thought it was interesting that he did come back in that I would never have suspected that. That that was something that completely took me off guard about the book, that he still wanted that position after he'd established himself, after he had Death Eaters, and shortly, probably shortly before he began his, if you want, reign of terror. Well, I think the the reason he sought out the position is not just for the position itself, but for like the status of coming back and infiltrating the school that he pretty much thought of as a home, basically. That's true. I just never would have thought that he came to, to Dumbledore in a subservient position. He always seemed to have an equal position. You had Dumbledore on one end of the spectrum and Voldemort on the other, but they were always, in my mind, equals. They were of roughly equal power that when they battled each other, they came to a draw. And so here we see Lord Voldemort coming, basically asking for a job which is not the, the something that equals to do, and so it just cast him in a totally different light, something I'd never suspected. But it draws back to the Slytherin line, doesn't it? Any means to achieve that end. That's true. If that means lowering yourself, degrading yourself to get what you want, you know, it's your gain at the end of the day, which it could have been for him. So that's possibly why he did it. Right, I don't see it as he was being subservient to Dumbledore, because, I mean, that wasn't his ultimate goal. That was just a means to get in to get his ultimate goal, which is, we don't exactly know, taking over the school possibly or getting and one of those final horcruxes. And yet it also set up those similarities of ties between Voldemort and Harry. Dumbledore gives the explanation that one of the reasons he, think he, he thinks he wanted him to come back was because he's more connected to Hogwarts than he's been to any place or person. And Harry has the same feeling. And that disturbed Harry. was interesting. That, right. that, that was very disturbing to him. Well, would you like to be connected to the most evil wizard known to man? Except no. for Lori. <laughs> I'm not making any <laughs> comments. This is A.W. Riddle. <laughs> All the way. <laughs> Speaking of our relationships, we got to get in our one minute on shipping. Draco and Pansy sailed completely. Yes, it did. Sailed into the sunset. Yep. How or, or the gallows, whichever comes first. Yes. yes. Um, yeah, can we stick to the sunset, please? And I have to That's be perfectly honest. I have to come forward and say that although I never thought it would come to pass, I was a little disappointed that Ron and Hermione got together. But I, I never suspected it happening, but when that door slammed shut, yeah, I, I was a little sad about that. But I, I was very happy with Ginny and Harry. It really, Aaron? I didn't. I didn't think you were a Harry Hermione shipper. Well, no, I, I but I don't. I don't, I don't ship. I don't ship at all. I just, you know, when I kind of got that, you just that little twinge of man. I would have liked to see Harry and Hermione get together. So yeah. But no, I'm not a shipper. I would like to go on record as saying I am not a shipper. <laughs> we had the opposite. Puffin and I were reading this thing. You know, the night it came out, she was a few pages ahead of me, and all of a sudden I hear, "Turn page 553." We get there, and there was just. Oh, complete fangirling moments. For oh, so yeah. I wasn't that bad. I I grinned when Harry and Ginny kissed, and that was about it. It was um, nice to see Harry finally comfortable with a girl. He just yes. he, he was either oblivious or so awkward, and it was nice to see just. And I think that in in life, at least for me, that's that's who I knew. You know, I had interest in was somebody that I was comfortable with as a friend, and it was nice to see that that was how J.K. Rowling. Uh, showed a relationship was that it was somebody that they eventually friends friendship turned into something a little more so right. I liked that which is why I, I don't think that Harry and Hermione quite would have worked out because 
their relationship as friends did turn into something more, but it was more like brotherly sisterly. Yeah, that's true. Very he platonic. Sees, he sees Ron and Hermione as his family, basically. So to to be involved with, I mean, either one of them would just be awkward at best. Okay, something so I really like. You're down green-eyed weasel then, Brooke? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You know what I really liked in the book, and, and I want to hear what you guys think. I really, really liked the parts that had to do with the Felix Felicis. I liked that stuff. I mean, it was just, it was interesting. It reminded me of some of the earlier things from the books that were just, you know, so wonderful about that magical world. And I thoroughly enjoyed how Harry manipulated. I mean, it was just, it was, it was great. It was Slytherin. It was the Slytherin Harry coming out. Can I just I was just say, glad it wasn't a cat. I'm, I'm just so glad it wasn't a person. Like, I didn't think it was a person. I thought it was a spell or something along those lines, and I'm just so glad it wasn't a person. See, on record, I thought that the, the description of Scrimgower that she gave us on the website was going to end up being feeling that, that That's what I thought, too. Well, I thought a lot of people did. So I pretty much go on record that I think the only thing I was right about was the relationships. Everything else just went down in flames for me. <laughs> Reading well, and going wrong about this that. This is why I don't theorize. That. I don't get to be proven wrong then. Well, if you're right about everything, that's no fun. Well, the only yeah. thing I've really theorized about is the the series itself as a whole. And so, so far, I'm on track with that. I'm I'm doing okay with it. Oh, so. would you like to share your secrets? Okay. Well, I you, you've got you've got bookends. You've got books where Harry faces the actual physical Voldemort. And so six was a little iffy. We had Harry. In number two, he faced an incarnation of Voldemort in, in some form, but not Voldemort himself. And I kind of expected something along those lines in six, but we had a build-up to it. In books three and five, Harry did not battle Voldemort or Death Eaters. He really, I mean, technically the whole book was not about him battling Death Eaters. He, he, um, he dealt with Sirius Black so heavily in book three. He dealt with the Ministry very heavily in book five. And then you have number four, which was the 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 book that holds everything together, that holds the first half and the second half together. So it's, you know, it's a little rocky, but it's, it's still kind of there. So that, that's my main theory about the book. So it's just basically the structure. I know a lot of people have made the comments that this book seems short. As big as it is, it seems short. And I know that I'm wondering how and where Rowling is going with that next step. How is she going to take us to seven and answer all those questions? I'm one of those people that likes to have everything tied up at the end. If Harry's yeah. dead, God forbid, he's dead at least. I know how everything ends, and I, I can't quite yet see how she's going to get there in seven, but I'm, I can't wait. So, so Kim, you think you, you, you want to see it wrapped up. I think she's going to have to have a long book to do it. I think it's going to have to be the longest of the series so far. If it's, if it's going to wrap up all the loose ends we're looking for, the back history of James and Lily, um, just a lot of different things that... We've not, as not well as the doing what for. we've got to do, as well as finding all those Horcruxes, yes, we've got to find how to destroy them. Yeah, and then the ultimate battle, of course, <laughs> exactly. where it's you've got the Dark Lord is finally taken down. You've got three Horcruxes and Voldemort, so that's four things you have to destroy. All the resolutions. It's going to be a phenomenal piece of work. It really is. And long, I think. Mm. So, final thoughts on the book and things that you liked or didn't like. Uh, well, I'll just say I really enjoyed this book a lot. I think it's hard for me to say it's my favorite because Prisoner of Azkaban is the one that really got me hooked onto the series, so it's hard to replace that. But um, it's definitely a close second. And 
I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it was just like such tight plotting, kind of like Prisoner of Azkaban, and a lot of backstory and a lot of questions were answered, just like in Prisoner of Azkaban. Kim, what did you think? I think, um, unlike Brooke, I'm almost positive this is probably my favorite. The more I read it, and nerd that I am, I'm on like my fourth reread. The more I read it, the more that I feel that it is taking my place as a favorite. I love Prisoner of Azkaban. I've got a soft spot in my heart for that one. I love Remus and Sirius and watching them in action. But I really, prior to this, it had been Order of the Phoenix as favorite. You know, really great, tight, same thing, tight plotting. This one just blew that out of the water. Mm-hmm. The backstory is, is more there. You're starting to see some clues, but I still can't quite make sense of them. And I, it makes me want to go back and reread it again and again to, to start to find some of those clues and some of those places where they tie together and look for more of that. Good. Laura, what did you think? Um, well, I'm, I enjoyed it, of course, um, but I'd say it's probably sort of third or fourth on my list. Hmm. Um, in some senses, there were some things for me that went on a bit too much. I struggled with all the romance because that just doesn't appeal to me, and it was very different compared to other books. And I also found that there was the same thing. You'd keep going back and looking at memories and finding out a bit more, and by the end of it, there's going to be a few people who hate me for this, but it was kind of a bit of an overused plot device to keep going using those memories. And I know that was how it was set out to be. But if you're going to keep going back into the memories, maybe just, you know, drag it down into maybe a couple less chapters. Prisoner of Azkaban and Chamber of Secrets. I like them short and potent. And this was potent, but there was just a couple of elements that made me think, mm. um, it wasn't as... B- I, I do not like Order of the Phoenix compared to the others. Mm. Um, it's not on that sort of scale at all, but it's, it, nothing for me can beat Prison of Azkaban, Chamber of Secrets, and Goblet of Fire. They are mm. just... Yeah, I, I love Goblet of Fire, and I just, I read this one, and I think number seven, wow, there's, I don't even know that number seven can touch number four. I'm going to look back at it and say, no, there's just nothing that could top number four for me. That said, I did enjoy this one, and uh, it's probably third on my list after Goblet and then Prisoner of Azkaban. I liked it. I felt like it could have been longer, and I don't normally say that about our books because usually you get a, a nice, complete picture. But I felt like we're getting so close to the end, and we did get mm-hmm. a lot of answers. But I just think, how can you get everything left into book seven? So I feel like some of it's just going to fall by the wayside. So that said, I wish it had been a little bit longer. So anyway, it leaves us a lot to do until book seven comes out. And for the mods at Leaky Cauldron, I'm Lady Stratford. This is Alien Minks. This is Asphodel Wonder. And this is Kim M. Parker, ending Modcast 1. Podcast. This is In the Know. Welcome to In the Know, the segment of Pottercast where we get to talk with people with specialized knowledge of films, books, music, and so on so they can offer an informed opinion about Harry Potter and the latest news and issues. This week we have with us Garth Franklin, who is the creator of DarkHorizons.com, which is one of the biggest movie, review, rumor, and feature sites online. Garth, who's 27, has been running the site from his home in Sydney, Australia, for almost 10 years. As part of his work, he watches an uncountable number of films every year. He's written well over a thousand reviews, and he's conducted hundreds of interviews with the likes of Arnold Schwarzenegger, Julia Roberts, Jude Law, Keanu Reeves, Orlando Bloom, the list goes on. 
He's been called upon by CNN, NBC, Time Magazine, and the New York Times, you know, just to name a few, <laughs> to speak about his cinematic knowledge, and I have some special inside information that lets me know he's also a really great guy. So we're thrilled to have him. Hi, Garth. Hey. <laughs> okay, so let's start. A couple of weeks ago, you were quite lucky to go to Comic-Con in, in San Diego, and you told me you witnessed some really extended and intense footage from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. So can you describe that yes. for us? Yes, essentially they played what looked like a, a, a proper f a full-length theatrical trailer, which will start playing in theaters in about a month or two. Um, it may vary, they may vary it for the final release, but what they showed was practically the whole film. Um, in It was only three minutes long, but in, in a montage sort of style. And some of the footage was unfinished. There was, you know, rough versions of the dragons flying and so forth, but there was a lot of great stuff which hasn't been seen in any of the trailers so far. A lot of Mad-Eye Moody at work. Um, there was a great bit with uh, the announcements of the names out of the Goblet of Fire, of course, for anyone who's read the books. It's all done very... Dumbledore doing very regularly, calling out, you know, Cedric Diggory, Fleur Delacour, and then he goes, Harry Potter! <laughs> very, very upset. And then the ending is also very memorable because it builds up the whole Voldemort thing. And so you're seeing flashes of you know, uh, Pettigrew over the cauldron and then him carrying this little white thick creature in his arms towards the screen and flash, flash, flashing. You can't make it out, but you sort of can. It's kind of creepy as hell. They, so, they, so they showed the ending bits? They showed a little bit of the ending, yeah. The, the whole sort of stuff in the graveyard, was, there was flashes of it. There was a bit with the snake and uh, the caretaker discovering it. It was, it was quite surprising how much they did show. Well, what was your overall impression compared to trailers you've seen of the other movies? Well, compared with the other ones, I mean, this, like I said, this trailer wasn't finished. There was a lot of effect shots which weren't completed, and yet it was the best of the trailers I've seen for any of the Harry Potter movies. And the cheering was just insane. Cool. <laughs> Mike Newell did an intro beforehand, quite funny about how, you know, um, Harry's in his fourth year, Harry's going to come across all these dangers with you know evil wizards and so forth, and that most dangerous thing of all, girls. <laughs> girls? <laughs> yeah. Excellent. About Mike Newell, with your knowledge of the other things that he's done, what are you expecting to be different in this film? Um, I think the the bar was set with the last one, the third one, so much higher than I suppose I like Columbus's stuff. Um, what the thing with uh, that Curran did was this very dark teenage fantasy adventure. What this one is going to be is more like the old Columbus films in terms of the light-hearted tone. It's something much more cinematic like the Curon films. That'll be the best elements of both mind, and I think maybe even a new, fresher angle we're not used to seeing with Potter. Um, I think when we did we talk with some of the people that were involved on it, and they said one of the big aspects that they're bringing back is this is going to be much more of a spout at the school, which you didn't see in the last one, mate. Kids would just, you know, seem to have free time all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so now they're bringing back that whole, you know, group kids mentality, all interacting and everything together, which we didn't see before. Yeah. It seems like it's going to sort of explode as a film. There's so much more to do. Um, well, yeah. I mean, of all of, of all the books, this is the big action one. This is the if there's any to be made into a Hollywood blockbuster, this is it. So <laughs> and so everything I've seen so far has been, he's done it a lot better than I expected. I think a lot, a lot more than anyone expected, actually. We were talking about that a little bit um, offline, that there's some talk that the box office figures have not been as great as people would like them to be this year, and that there's all this pressure on Potter to deliver as a big blockbuster. Oh, yes, this year. I mean, 
uh, revenue has been down across the board internationally and in the US for Potter. Not for, not for Potter, but for just every film. Last summer, um, they had a couple of sequels all hitting at once. So you had Potter, you had Shrek, you had Spider-Man. And it was like huge business. But this year, they're not breaking records. And there's movies that are doing well, but nothing you know, short of Star Wars and to a lesser extent, War of the Worlds, there hasn't really been any huge hits. So a lot of people are banking on Potter and to a lesser extent Kong um, to sort of save the year. Wow. No pressure. Yeah. No pressure. <laughs> 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 Potter is like a brand name. The one thing that's selling, that's selling actually still in movies is a big event movie, and that's what people are wanting, and Potter does deliver on that count. Yeah. Well, something that's going to be new with this film, with, which we just found out about you know less than a week ago, is that it, it's going to be the first time that a Potter film is not PG. This one got a PG-13 rating. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think? I, I like that fact. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 one of the, it's like the novels themselves. As, as they get progressing, they're getting older in tone, and in Rowling's writing is improving. Same with the movies. They're, they're getting older in tone. They're adjusting as the kids become more grown up. I mean, the kids are, what, 14 or 15 now, so, mm -hmm. you know, I guess they're aiming for 14 or 15-year-olds, so if they're PG-13, it's fine. Right. Um, but I know they they want to try and keep it PG to allow the kids in, but uh, PG-13 is a financial decision more than anything, I guess. PG-13 movies are the most successful movies of all time in, like, the last 10 years. Really? So, yeah, people because people see it as enough of having enough edge to be darker than a PG movie, but far enough to, you know, cross any sort of boundaries of going too hard. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess it the cool factor is is retained for teenagers also. It's not exactly. like a kiddie yeah. movie, you know? Exactly. That's, that's what they're thinking, especially with Potter and the initial ones, people were thinking these are kids' movies. Well, but how excited does it make you as a fan and a movie lover to see a franchise grow this way? Very exciting, because so many don't grow. Um... It's, it's rare to find one that has so been able to stick with all the main people and to keep the values but still expand on it without going stale. I mean, so many of the franchises, when they hit their fourth film, for example, you look at the movies like the Star Wars movies or the Star Trek movies, and they're all... By the fourth, by the, you know, the fourth time the fourth movie comes around, they're kind of oh, tired and oh, stale. <laughs> or they just repeat the first film over and over again, like James Bond does. <laughs> so... <laughs> So this, it's rare to see one that actually, you know, you grow, you grow with it and it becomes, and it takes it into different directions. It's fascinating. Yeah. You don't get that kind of stuff. Much. Now the kids are staying off the fifth film, and so that's, yeah. that will be interesting in many ways. That's that's more uh, a tougher sell than the fourth one because the fifth one is a director which most people aren't familiar with in terms of, even in movies. I mean, Neil, for example, has had good success in films before. This is something I haven't. And it's also such a darker book and such more an introvert book a much harder sell, but it will be interesting to see what they do with it. Yeah, it's a cold book in many ways. It's yeah, yeah. It's it's the it's the middle child syndrome kind of. <laughs> book five is very. I I would have to say, speaking from a totally inexperienced inexperienced point of view, that that's got to be the hardest one to make into a movie. Certainly, um, especially now that book six has been released, and that is actually quite a cinematic book, um, and and the others. Some of them were more complex, but they sort of lent themselves more to movies. Book five is the one that's they're going to be a, a struggle to make a sort of big franchise tentpole movie out of. It's much more introspective than that. 
Now, David Yates, we touched a little bit on him. He is he's new. <laughs> he's just new to most people. Most people have no idea. So what do you think motivated the choice to go with him? Well, so far they've actually they picked well. I mean, one of the great things about the Potter franchise so far has been is just the people who are entrenched in it, who work on all of them, so good at their jobs, is that as long as the person in charge is, com- is competent enough or well-skilled enough, it, there's no way you can really sort of go wrong. Um, the thing with Yates, I think, I think the reason they chose him was because, I guess, a lot of the stuff he has done has only been for TV, but it's been very good and very critically acclaimed stuff. But I think they see with him an edge that even Newell or Grand didn't have. They can try and bring out this sort of quite dark and quite sort of interesting that new take on Potter. It's like almost hiring, you know, Guy Ritchie or something, but a more toned down Guy Ritchie. Who who would you cast for Umbridge? That's a very tricky one. Mm. Um, I can't think of it because it, uh, right. they sort of roll, and it's like one name I heard Dara Ritchie, I didn't mind, but I don't think I don't know if she looks it so much. Is Jennifer Saunders? Oh, yeah, she'd be good. With regards to Umbridge, the one that I've heard a lot has been, you know, sort of wish list casting has been Judy Dench. Judy Dench for Umbridge? Mm, yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's an unexpected <laughs> choice, but it is an interesting one. It's, uh, I must admit, she would certainly have the talent to pull it off, but the trouble with Judy Dench is that she's such a lovable girl, it's hard to see her as this complete cow, which is what Umbridge did. <laughs> yeah. Complete evil cow. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> um, so let's talk a bit about book six. Yes. What was your, speaking as a movie buff, what was your original reaction to it? Uh, my initial reaction is, because I only just finished it about two or three days ago, my initial reaction is, is that I, as much as I really enjoyed it, I felt it was just too much set up for the next one, mm-hmm. which is fine in its own way. But um, there's some, certainly some great scenes. The cave scene is chilling I remember that and I liked compared with last year's one which was so Harry was such an annoying little (laughs) little man Um, he was much better this time around and a lot of the sort of supporting actors were much more interesting so what do you what kind of challenges do you think it's going to present the filmmakers for the the sixth book Um, six yeah there's quite yeah there's quite a few I think because so much of it is away from Hogwarts that's going to be very different from what we've seen. It's very different takes on both um, Dumbledore and Snape um, as characters than we've seen. It'll be quite interesting to see how they handle those two. Especially, they're both great actors, but we're we're so used to them playing their characters in a certain way. It's going to be tricky to see them done in this way. Um, other things, it is a dark book. Uh, even in a PG-13 movie, having you know zombies coming out of legs is kind of a <laughs> very difficult aspect of a try. Yeah. No matter and how old you end, are. Exactly. And because it ends on such a somber note um, and it's such a cliffhanger for the next one, it, it's, people are going to be, you know, it's like Empire Strikes Back. It's, people are going to be, oh my God, I have to wait three years for the next one. So if you had a, a dream director, who would you cast for that? Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tricky one. Um, I haven't thought about that one actually. Uh it, a lot of it, again, would depend on how they do it. If they did them separately, um, I would I wouldn't mind seeing Karan come back um, because that one feels a lot actually like how the third movie looked, mm. or felt in, in quite a few ways. I wouldn't mind seeing him handle it. Cool. Yeah, but in terms of new directors, like the major directors, I don't know. I, I wouldn't trust Spielberg or Stone or any of them to handle it because they 
take it too much to their own vision. Right. So you think it would have to be somebody that has not had that kind of immense success? Well, usually the ones that have that immense success, um, uh, as anyone who who work with them will know, are a pain to work with. <laughs> and you want somebody, <laughs> you want somebody who can handle it well, who knows how to do the filmmaking, but is willing to step back for the material. Who's not going to be afraid of letting their ego not take control of things. Listen, Garth, thank you so much. Garth's site again is darkhorizons.com. It's an excellent site for info. And um, we are going to have you again, I am sure. <laughs> I look forward to it. Cool. Thanks, Garth. Podcast. And now it's time for... Extendable Ears. Our new celebrity. Only on... Podcast. Welcome to Extendable Ears, the last segment of Pottercast, and the one in which we get to bring you interviews or clips of interviews with people who produce the films and the books. This segment is partially sponsored by Retrovision Magazine, which is publishing a Harry Potter news diary this September, which should be of interest to a lot of fans. It's going to feature a 35,000-word news chronicle and one-on-one interviews with directors, producers, and the main Harry Potter actors. Fan-known artist Alice Wack designed the front cover for the magazine, which you can order at darkcommandos.com that's d-a-r-k-c-o-m-m-a-n-d-o-s dot com if you pre-order it by August 31st you get an 11 by 17 inch version of Alice's art for free so our first segment for you is of Bonnie Wright who I spoke to a couple of weeks ago for Leaky Bonnie is 14 and she plays Ginny in the Harry Potter films and is just about as down to earth as you can imagine we spoke to her first about her experience filming Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire And there's obviously, there's obviously been a lot of new cast in this film. And it's been really good, great to work with all the people. I've been, like, enjoyed meeting everyone. They've all been really great. And this one's really great as everything happened in Hogwarts. So it kind of seems they're still belonging in the school. And there's so many big scenes. It's so fun to film, like, at the Triwizard Tournament and the Quidditch scenes and the Quidditch World Cup. And so many scenes with so many people in that have been really fun. Because sometimes, obviously, being in a small set with just one other person for quite a few weeks and often sometimes get a bit tedious. So when you're with so many people, you can talk to them and can, you know, relate in the scene and talk about the scene and learn from each other. The characters are sort of dealing with all these other worlds coming into theirs. And now it's sort of the same thing that's happening on set. You've been this insular group of people for three years, for three films, and now there's twice as many people hanging around. Mm. How is that to deal with? It's nice to have such a big cast. I mean, it was nice all, all, also to have a small, you know, more, I suppose, closed cast and much more tightly um, meshed. But it's quite nice to have a more open, you meet, there's more, I suppose there's a range of people that you meet from different, you know, that have experienced different things. It's fun to be with new people each film, like new, like new blood each film. It's nice. Who do you think you learned from this time around? Mike Newell's been great. He's, he's kind of almost seen it in different ways. He's obviously got such a picture in his mind, mm-hmm. and he really likes to explain it. He obviously likes to explain it to you and show that there's a lot of background. He always makes you feel more of part of it. He's brought the others from this new film into it and hasn't let them be on the outside. And you kind of learn from that to show that they can all come in and they can all 
relate to you and they can still act as you even if it's you and everyone's friends already. He sees a lot, I think he sees much, the whole film as a big open thing. Instead of looking at the scene, he looks at the whole thing and how it all pieces together. So he's all, like with all the big scenes, he's looked at them kind of far off and seen what, what does that look like and what's the atmosphere. You just feel like much more belonging to the film. You, it kind of, he makes you kind of feel as if you have much more part into the film. If you had to tell somebody, um, which scene to, you know, without giving away too much, which scene to, like, look out for, which scene that you think is going to be just great? Which one would you tell them? going to be spectacular, because it's going to be so visually amazing. Because, you know, everything is transformed. Everyone is transformed. Like, normally you just see the great hall, you know, all the candles lit and everyone in their full uniform, but now it's just going to be, like, everyone dressed up and uh, everything's just going to be dressed up and everything's just going to be converted into some, some fantastic form. After book six came out, it became clear that we should probably reconnect with Bonnie and ask her about her impressions. So here is Bonnie Wright talking about her reactions to Half-Blood Prince. Harry looked around. There was Ginny running toward him. She had a hard, blazing look in her face as she threw her arms around him. And without thinking, without planning it, without worrying about the fact that 50 people were watching, Harry kissed her. Although it's shorter than the last one, it kind of felt the same length. So it was quite detailed. No, I, I liked it. I think I liked it even more than the fifth one a little bit because it it rolled along a bit faster. Yeah, first of all, was it a surprise to you that she got so carried it? You know, and it's quite weird because all that at the beginning it was kind of always she'd never really she kind of it was always a wasted dream for her, and then she kind of got it, and it was quite weird to see that. That's what happened. What was your reaction? I was like, oh my god, this is actually me doing this thing. Yeah. These things. It's quite odd. Because it's also quite odd, because obviously it's not you, it's the character, but then you're going to play her. So it's quite weird, like, reading it, kind of almost thinking every time you read the person's name, it's kind of you, but it isn't. So it's quite odd. Well, let's, let's suppose that the cast stays the same up until movie six. Would that be weird for you? I mean, what's your relationship with Dan like? Do you think you guys would be fine doing this, or, or what? I don't know, it's hard to see before you actually do it, I suppose. I mean, it's quite weird, wouldn't it, because it's obviously everyone, there's like hundreds of people there. Yeah. <laughs> Watching, but it's quite, I don't know, but I think you don't really know what it'll feel like until it happens, like, <laughs> like, reading over them, saying, oh god, I might be doing that, and I'm doing that, and keep reading it, and keep finding things that you're going to be reading. What do you think's going to happen to her in the last I don't one? know. You know, it's quite hard to trade because everyone was kind of left on a bit of a kind of cliffhanger at the end, like on what they're doing next. Do you think she's going to live? Um, hope so. <laughs> Our second and final segment of this week's first Extendable Ears program is an interview with Stuart Craig, who is the production designer on the Harry Potter films. And our production designer, and specifically Stuart Craig, they oversee every last physical detail of of the movies. And so Stuart Craig, having done all four movies, has an encyclopedic knowledge of what's been in them, probably more so than almost anybody who works on them. So right now, we're in the really early stages, as we've been told, of movie five just in the beginning. So in this segment, Stuart Craig starts talking about what David Yates, who is the director for the fifth film, is bringing to the project. Enjoy. Stuart, Stuart Craig. Craig. A, a concern to, to 
put his own stamp on it, make his own movie, of course. Mm. Um, again, the story helps in that the, there's a whole new venue. A lot of it takes place in London and in the Ministry of Magic, which is a whole new magical world, subterranean world in, in London. So there's plenty of opportunity to, to uh, explore something different. It really is very, very early days. We're looking at the other movies, how they were shot, their virtues and so on, but already talking about new ways of seeing um, Hogwarts and its landscape and its context, you know. Uh, it, it isn't surprisingly exhausted, it really isn't. We went on a, on a sort of a pilgrimage, in a way, to, to the Highlands of Scotland um, with David Yates. And, uh, and already he, uh, you know, he... Uh, literally began to talk about specific shots here and there, you know, and, uh, and how we might uh, explore it and do something new. And so it's amazing how fresh the, you know, the same territory can, can be, really. And uh, I guess as a designer, um, that's kind of what's kept me going, is the fact that uh, this um, new blood comes in each time and um, regenerates itself. The directors all have uh, profoundly different priorities. Different DPs, of course, are always looking to treat it in a different way. I think what, what, what has happened also is, is that the, the, the kids have, have got older, both in, in story terms, but also that as, as young actors, they're much more sophisticated now than they were in, the, in Chris Columbus's first film. My new style was, he, he's very, very attentive to the, to the story, to the narrative. He's also a great actor's director, I think, and so it further um, uh, exploits, takes advantage of the, you know, the increasing talents of the young actors. And um, he's also very funny. Mike likes a good joke, and Mike tells a good joke, and uh, I think there are lots of good jokes in this, uh, in this fourth film. Mm. So they're capable of much greater subtlety, and therefore the films uh, have become, I think, in a way, more subtle and more sophisticated. But nonetheless, um, you know, Chris's concern and, and the concerns of the early books, I think, were, was um, just a cracking good yarn. Um, they, uh, you know, the adult themes, in fact, matters of life and death, uh, and friendships that uh, that um, turned sour, and friends that fell out, and so on. All those more serious adult things were were still to come. You know, they were well in the future. So, I, I think the uh, Harry Potter one, Harry Potter two, had the virtue of being very fast, very pacey. Um, the magic was enchanting, hopefully, but the the thrills and the chases were exciting also. Um, Alfonso then made something rather li uh, lighter in touch, rather more uh, sort of magical in a delicate way. But as I say, the themes began to be more adult. And then with Mike Newell particularly, um, uh, you know, the, the themes got very, very sharply uh, more serious and grown up. And um, on Harry Potter 5, which is just, just now beginning pre-production, um, you know, uh, as far as I know, all three kids are, are coming back. Well, that's it for the first ever Pottercast. We hope you've had fun. For the next show, we want to talk to you. Not me, not Hermione, you. Listen up. We want your voicemails, your opinions, your comments, everything. So you can get to us on the web at pottercast.com. 
gmail.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail message via Skype. If you have Skype, and you should think about getting it if you don't, it's at www.skype.com. It's a really easy online telephony service that allows you to call and leave us voicemail for absolute free. Our username is, as you probably guessed, Pottercast. If you can't get Skype, just use your phone to call us and leave us a, a voicemail on our Skype voicemail box. We have two phone numbers for it. One that's good if you're in America and one that's good if you're in the UK. Now these are not toll free. It will cost you whatever it costs to call the respective area codes. If you're in the US, you can call us at 425-29-62445, which works out to 425 by magic with a K. 425-by-M-A-G-I-K. Trust us, we would have gotten to see if we could have. Again, it's one 425 If you're in the UK, you can call us at 020-719-32872. That's 020-719-32872. If you're not in the US or the UK, you can just get Skype and you can do it for free. For next week's show, we're looking for fans who think they know everything about Harry Potter to take part in the first ever Harry Potter game show called Potterania. If you think you have what it takes, go to pottercast.com and take the application quiz there. We've put in anti-cheating restrictions, but we warn you that if you do manage to cheat, you'll only be getting yourself into trouble when it comes time to compete against those who didn't have to. So again, the info is at pottercast.com if you think you have what it takes. Also, if you think you want to be the next fan interview, send us an email at staff at pottercast.com with fan interview in the subject line telling us why you should be. That's staff at pottercast.com. Over the week, we'll be listening to your voicemails, we'll be reading your emails, we'll be looking for questions to answer on the show, and we'll be looking for good people to interview so go to pottercast.com and you'll get all the info you need and that's it we hope you had fun that's the end of the first ever pottercast we will see you next week we've missed it now if you two don't mind i'm going to bed great scott no wonder look at the time we've been here nearly four hours spooky how the time flies when we're having fun (laughs) 